Good morning. Uh, it's good to have you here with us this morning. My name is Nathan Hinkle. I'm the campus pastor here at White Oaks Ross Township Campus. Great to have you here, especially if you're a guest with us. We've been in a series where we've been looking at the book of Romans in the New Testament of our Bible for several weeks now. And it's not really a, a book so much as it's a letter, okay, written by Paul to the churches that are scattered, scattered throughout the city of Rome. Um, now, if this series that we've been in since uh, September, going through this book of Romans, if you've loved it, we're wrapping it up next week. So I just hope you've just been absorbing it, you've been reading along. If you've hated it, hang in there, all right? Because December's coming, and we'll switch to something different. Probably something about Christmas, I would imagine. So um, hang in there. We're almost done with Romans, all right? Paul has written these letters, and, and at Paul, the heart, at his heart, his core of who he is, Paul is a church planter, right? He wants to see churches built up and scattered throughout the Roman Empire, all right? And he has two main goals that he wants to see happen in Rome, in the, in, in the Roman Empire. One, his number one goal, this is Paul, this is who he is. His number one goal is he wants to see the gospel of Jesus, the good news about Jesus, which is for everyone. He wants to see it spread throughout the empire. Number one goal, he wants to see the name of Jesus known and embraced by an entire empire. Second to that, all right, second to that is he wants to bring together a family of believers, a family of Christ followers together into one unified community. And that task is going to be more difficult than it sounds, right? But that's his goal. So what's happening in the Roman churches in the first century, that, that grabs Paul's attention and why he feels the way he's so passionately about it, the way that he does, is because there is division within the church, okay? Within the body of believers, within the faith community, there is division, there is infighting, there is a fracture of relationships between two particular people groups. And if that continues, it threatens Paul's entire goal, and that is that the love of Jesus through his church would conquer an empire. So he's got to deal with it, all right? Now, in the book of Romans, this word, these two words don't appear super frequently, okay? But they are there, and it is actually a theme from Romans 1 to 16, the whole book, the whole letter. And that is this conversation about two different people groups titled the weak and the strong. Now, let me explain to you what that is because I think it's important for our context today as it has been actually all along. When Paul talks about the weak Christians, it, it, it's probably about as offensive as you think it would be today, all right? The weak Christians are the Jewish Christians, okay? Those who have followed the Jewish customs and Old Testament law for, for generations, for, for centuries and centuries. They're now believers in Jesus. They're followers of Jesus, all right? And they're called weak. Paul sometimes refers to them as the weak because, um, well, for two reasons. One is it's their social status in Rome. They, Jews in Rome had a very low social status, okay? Very low. And not only that, but they were dependent in their, the way that they approached their faith they were dependent on the Old Testament, on the Hebrew scriptures. They were dependent on their rules and traditions 
to kind of keep their faith alive. All right? That was who they They looked down on the Roman Christians. So let me say, on the Gentile Christians. So the word Gentile in the first century was anybody who's not Jewish. Okay? Anybody who's not Jewish. Particularly these ethnic Italian Romans, all right? These are the Gentile believers, all right? And the Jews look down on them, all right? Because they see the Gentiles as as outsiders, people that don't follow rules or tradition for faith, all right? And, And they see them as less than, okay? For the Jews, their faith is lived out daily through tradition and rule following, Okay. Now, Paul also then refers to the other group, the strong. You're like, man, that's the category I want to be in, right? That's the strong. And it's generally talking about the Gentile, the non-Jewish Christians. Now, that's for two reasons. Okay. One is the Romans had higher social status in the empire. Okay. Their social class and therefore their, social, their power in the, in the empire was greater than the Jews. Okay. Also, the Romans weren't um, bogged down with tradition and, and, and religious laws. They just came to know Jesus, and it was simply Jesus, okay? They are going to look down on the Roman. Uh, the, the Roman Christians will look down on the Jews. They'll see the Jews as a socially in a lower class and people who are just tied to their outdated tradition. For Jews, I mean, so, so for these Gentile Christians, freedom and faith was what drove them, not religious rules. So what you have is you've got these two groups are at odds with each other, all right? It is a social class thing, all right? It is very much uh, I am more important than you in this culture thing. It's a racial thing. It's very much an ethnicity thing. It's a clash of religious ideals, okay? And it's a very self-focused thing. Both groups look internally and say, this is how we think it should be done. It's very selfish and not others focused. You can imagine all of those issues coming to head with quite a problem. It's not really so unlike what we deal with today. So Paul begins to wrap up his letter. Today we're going to be in Romans 14. We'll dip into 15 a little bit next week. Last chapter, 16, all right? So as Paul's been wrapping up this tail end of his letter, he says in chapter 12, a few, couple weeks ago we talked about this, all right? That he says, in view of God's great mercy, all right? And when he says that, because God loves you so much, because he has showered you with unearnable love and grace and mercy, get ready for it. He says, I, Paul says, I challenge you, the church, to learn how to love really, really well. That you should be the experts at love. Because of all the love that God has showered on you, you should be experts in love. And when you are, that light will shine out into an empire that is shrouded in darkness. So this is our big idea for today. If you've got a program on your way in here, which I'm pretty sure you did on the front, it should say this, I am not divisive. I am not divisive, all right? Now, the truth is we are, okay? So, and, and, and so were they. And so Paul's letter speaks to you and I very, very particularly today, all right? We're gonna talk about something here in a minute. You're gonna be like, what in the world is Paul talking about? It's gonna be a great question because he's gonna get into this nitty gritty detail about something but it has a larger point, 
has a larger point of application for us, which we will hear today and walk away with. So you're going to have to hang in there with me, okay? Jesus has this picture of his church. Paul reiterates this picture over and over again, and that is love, okay? And love, in its most profound form, is belonging, okay? That's really, at the end of the day, that's what loving someone is. It's belonging. It's everyone has a place here. Everyone belongs here. Everybody has a seat at the table, okay? So we're, we're, we've got a pretend table here with our chairs around it. That's what love is. It's that everybody feels like they belong, okay? A spot at the table. Now, this is true of every culture, I think, for like all times, that having a spot at the table, sharing a meal with someone, that's a big deal. We still have that phrase in our, in our boardrooms or in our places of work today, to, to have a voice, to have a seat at the table, right? That means that we're in community. To eat with someone else in the ancient world, as is not crazy uncommon today, to sit down at a table with someone is to feel a kinship, um, to share community with them, to share your life with them. It's to accept. It's a place of belonging, all right? A spot at the table, right? We know that phrase because it's been, been important for hu- in human history forever. Now, I don't know about you, but, but your family, actually, I, I'm sure, your family as well as mine, we all have some, some pretty interesting like table rules going back from when you were kids, right? Um, if you can think back when you were growing up, what were some of the rules at the dinner table that you had in your family? Some of them I think would probably be really weird to me. Maybe some of the ones that I had growing up would be really weird to you. But you'll remember that at a spot at the table, when it came to rules about how, who you eat with and how you eat, Jesus was criticized very often for who he ate with, because it mattered. So when Jesus sat at a place in the table with the notorious sinners and prostitutes and thieves and addicts, when Jesus sat with them, it was a big deal, and the religious people criticized him for it. You understand that sitting at the table and who's invited to join you matters a great deal. I am not divisive. So Jesus was criticized for giving a place of belonging to everyone. So you and I have rules at the table, and and I loved thinking about this the other day, thinking through some preferences, opinions on what it means to have like a decent dinner at the table. There was a time, probably really not much in our culture anymore, where people dressed up a little bit for dinner. Did you ever have that? Where it was just kind of like a, how many of you will actually dress a little nicer for Thanksgiving in a couple weeks? It's just what you do, right? Some of you will be like, it's khakis, it's a sweater, or it's not Thanksgiving, all right? And I tell you what right now, I will offend you because we'll be in a hoodie and jeans, all right, if we're lucky, all right? That's what we wear for Thanksgiving on both sides of our family, all right? But some of you are like, oh my gosh, it's just not Thanksgiving unless everybody's dressed up. It's like, it is, okay? It's still Thanksgiving, but it's fun. But in, in some of you, it's like, no, it's not. It's not a Thanksgiving meal until you're wearing like khakis and, and a tie or whatever, okay? That's one. All right. Um, did you ever have the rule, no elbows on the table? Anybody ever tell you that? Do you know what's so offensive about elbows? Have you ever heard this? <laughs> nothing. All right. <laughs> There's nothing offensive about elbows. But at some point, someone's grandma was offended by elbows. 
And so that got passed down, because, and it's just a thing. It's like you put elbows on the table, that, that you're, you're, up, you're in for a fight, all right? Um, at, at, at home, though we didn't practice this, my mom would also always talk about this like etiquette of eating around the clock on your plate. Anybody ever heard this? This could just be crazy. Um, it probably is. But um, it was like you would take a bite of your chicken... And then you go clockwise around your plate. Then you take a bite of the side dish. We'll call it mashed potatoes with a little bit of skin, a lot of butter, some salt and pepper. Um, then you would take a bite of the green beans. And then you would just keep going around the clock. So you have this like balanced like portion size left. Anybody? No? Okay. See, I told you it's weird. And I think you're weird for dressing up for Thanksgiving. And it's okay. We all got our thing. All right. Um, everyone has assigned seats at the table. Do, do you ever have this at your house? where like everybody just naturally gravitates to one chair. And if you're ever sitting in one that you don't normally sit in, it feels weird. Or there's words that are used to describe that person. It's true because we, we experience this. Like at our house, there's only five chairs, all right, in our family. And we've lived in this house for like eight years. But inevitably, once a week or once every you know, few weeks, someone, or someone will sit down in one of the five and be like, you get this whole different experience, like this view in the room that you've never, you're like, I don't think I've ever sat here before. That's impossible, right? Because there's only five of us. You've sat, but because you always sit in your more assigned area, you sit in another seat at the table and you're like, I didn't know our dining room looked like this. Like, it's just a weird thing because we all have these assigned seats. There are cultures, not this one, that say that you should never handle food at the table with your left hand. You cannot eat left-handed. I am left-handed. I would have been executed in many cultures. Does anybody know why you're not, in some cultures, to eat with your left hand? It's disgusting. I'll tell you about it. If you come ask me at the Hub later, I'll tell you why, in some cultures, it's very offensive to eat at the table with your left hand. Um, You can Google it now. Many of you probably are already. So I'll say something meaningless for the next few minutes until you pull up your answer. All right. So there's lots of rules at the table, right? Now, none of those rules, none of those traditions actually make the meal more or less fulfilling, do they? I mean, the food still tastes the same, right? It's no big deal. But they're preferences and they're opinions. And if you change it, it just doesn't feel right, okay? Well, that's what Paul is beginning to deal with in Romans chapter 14. It seems a little odd, but it has a greater point of value that I think, I think will resonate. So we're going to start in Romans chapter 14, uh, starting with verse 1. And we do have Bibles for you at the hub. And also there's a car that has a great app, Bible app for you. You're going to love it. It's going to be a great tool. So we'll, we can show that to you as well. But look at Romans chapter 14, verse 1. Here's what it says. He says, accept other believers who are weak in faith. So he's talking actually to the Gentile Christians about the Jewish Christians, the weak in faith, Right? And don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. For instance, one person believes it's all right to eat anything, but another believer with a sensitive conscience will only eat vegetables. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. So why is Paul... And all of this wonderful theology about who God is and what grace and faith is. And why is he talking about vegetables? All right. It's a little weird, but there there is a context to it. It's important for where we're going to go here in a few minutes. All right. The Jews disagreed with the Gentile Christians about what was acceptable to eat. Right. The Jews had for centuries dietary laws. 
There were certain foods they were allowed to eat and certain foods they weren't allowed to eat. And so they carried that for centuries with them. To be a good Jew was to know what you were allowed to eat and not. And they carried that with them into the church, right? Now the Gentiles, the Roman Christians, they didn't have any dietary restrictions, right? So they could eat what, what really whatever they wanted. And what, what was, is the probable, the issue here, it's, you don't find it in Romans, but you do in the city of Corinth, and Paul will deal with that in First and Second Corinthians, is that the, the Romans are probably eating meat in front of the Christian brothers and sisters who are Jewish, uh, probably meat that was bought in the marketplace, which had been originally sacrificed to a Roman god, to a pagan idol. Right? So, so this cow was sacrificed as a, on an altar to a Roman goddess, and then it was chopped up, you know, cut into fillets, sold in the market. And the Roman Christians are buying these fillets, and they're throwing them on the grill, and they're having a great time. And, and the Roman Christians are like, if you love Jesus, how could you do that? Right? So there's a point of contention there. Right? They're, they're judging each other and arguing back and forth about what is appropriate to eat as a follower of Jesus and what is not. Now look at verse 14. Paul goes on. He says, I know and I am convinced on the authority of the Lord Jesus that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. But if someone believes it's wrong, then for that person it is wrong. And if another believer is distressed by what you eat, you're not acting love if you eat it. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died. Now, this menu that Paul has for the church is getting really serious. Because what you put on someone else actually can threaten their faith. Now, that's pretty serious. So a couple things Paul's saying here. He says, don't go against your conscience. If you think something is wrong, if, you, if it does not help you honor and glorify and worship our Heavenly Father, Paul says, guess what? Don't do it. That's okay. If that doesn't help you glorify your Heavenly Father and it's wrong to you, then it's wrong and you shouldn't do it. You can worship God however you, you really see fit as, as long as you're bringing glory and honor to Him. Okay? You have the right to do that. Just don't force other people to do it the same way you do it. That makes sense. Don't force people to do it the same way you do it. And on top of that, because you have the ability to eat whatever you want or worship God however you want, that's fine. Just don't rub it into the face of other Christians and say, well, if you were really a Christian, you would do this. You would worship like me. You would behave like me. You would prefer the things I prefer. Paul says, just don't rub it in their face and don't make them feel badly about it if they don't. Okay, what is the point of all that? Like they were having some dinner time issues in the church, so what? Right? Well, it's a big deal. And please hear me when I tell you, it is a much bigger deal than just a matter of what side of the plate you put your fork on, which is the left side, by the way, but it doesn't matter, all right? It doesn't matter. Or what seat at the table happens to be yours. It's much, much bigger than that. See, here's Paul's point with this little argument that's happening about rules. Paul says that rules tell people whether or not they belong. Right? If you believe like I do, if you behave that it, like it's appropriate to, then you belong. 
And if you don't, then you don't. And that church is a big problem. And that is the problem that Paul's addressing here. That's a big deal. Now, last week we talked about, because woven throughout the letter to the Romans, Paul is trying to help the Christians understand, now that they have been regenerated in Jesus, right? It is because of God's grace that we have the ability, that we are saved. It's, it's this gift God has given us. You can't earn it, and we can't deserve it. It is God's grace, and we get it through faith. If we believe, it's ours. That's good news. That's the gospel. If we only believe in that God loved us that much, then we are saved and we are, we are with him. Right? And, and Paul then talks about what this, what this Christ-formed life looks like. This, this life that is now being formed by Christ, by Jesus. Christ-formed life. Paul, Paul says throughout the letter, first and foremost, a Christ-formed life is one that is God-centric. God-centric. It means that we are focused on how we can bring glory and honor to our Heavenly Father. We've been set free from the power of sin that drags us down, so we get to focus now on, on, on taking these steps of obedience. Every day, you and I get to ask our Heavenly Father, what is it that I can do to just grow in my, my trust in you, to just grow in obedience with you? What is it that I can do in honor of all that you've done for me? Right? That's God-centric. That's a life lived just to know God and bring him glory in ever-increasing steps of faith and trust. Now, second to that, Paul will say throughout this letter, and just as important, is that the, we are also, as followers of Jesus, others-centric. We are others-focused. We are focused on how we can set a place at the table for anyone and everyone that's the goal. I'm others focused. How can I always help someone else to feel like they belong to Christ? Now, what's interesting about Romans is, that's actually, I mean, really, it, it's, it's Paul's posture in the entire letter is, he's talking to the church. There's an issue with Christian people. Okay, I mean, there's lots of issues with us, but there's an issue that church people are dealing with. Now, if you're here this morning, sitting here in this room, and you're not sure you're, you're a believer, you're not sure you want to, to know about White Oak or church or Jesus, you're just here checking things out, I'm really, really glad you are. And so what, what, what we're talking about today, you get to listen in on it. You just get to kind of like be in on it because it's a conversation about what Jesus' church should look like. And should you ever have an interest, you'll know what, we, what our goals are. You'll know what we want to be about. And then you can make a decision from there. Right? So in other words, a, a, a life formed by Jesus is God-centric and other-centric. So here's Paul's point. There's no room then, all right, in your life for self-centeredness. When you are so filled up imagining how you could take steps of trust and worship for in our Heavenly Father. When you are so just filled up with thinking, I mean, how can I just be focused on other people today? Listen, in your day, and my day, Paul said, there's no room for self-centeredness, okay? There's no room for the thing. Here's the thing about the church, about infighting in the church. When we are God-focused and others-focused, there's no room for things that divide us. 
if they don't have anything to do with those two categories. There's no room for it. Paul says this in verse 19. So then, let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. But we have a hard time with that, don't we? I know it's crazy, but church people, Christian people, have a really hard time making room at the table for others that aren't like us. And it looks differently, and, and, and we all struggle here with finding a, making a room at the table for people who aren't like us. Oftentimes, it'll be in the form of cliques. I don't know where that word came from. It's really weird, like click. But it is a group of people who really kind of just either intentionally or otherwise exclude another group. So in the church, it would probably look something like this. Okay. I'll put it on this side so all of us can see. All right, so th- this is actually an experience for many Christian people, is, is we've got something going on. We enjoy each other. That's great, all right? We enjoy each other. We've got a lot in common with each other, all right? We're a group of friends. We've been friends for a long time. We have kids the same age. We are on the same, blah, 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 right? And, and there's somebody that's trying to get in to belong. You don't have anything necessarily against them, though we might. We'll get to that here in a minute. You're just saying, hey, glad you're here. Find your own click. Can I be honest with you? If you don't live in the community of Ross, you still understand this because this is everywhere. In fact, I had a friend tell me the other day he just moved from Coleraine to Oakley. But the problem is he actually lives like on the border between Norwood and Oakley. And he said, dude, my neighbors on one side don't accept me as being part of Norwood. And the people on the other side who live in Oakley won't accept me as being an Oakleyanite. I don't know, whatever they call themselves. He's like, it's really weird, the culture there. He's like, just nobody accepts me. I said, it's because you're from Coleraine. Like, it's just not going to, it's not going to happen. And he's like, I never tell people that. <laughs> so if you say you're from the West Side, you're, you're just out immediately. But, but, but here's the thing. Ross is a difficult place. Can I be honest with you? Can I share something with you? I consider myself somewhat of an outsider to Ross. I didn't go to high school here. I didn't grow up here. My kids didn't start, most of my kids didn't start school here. Um, We moved here a little bit later. So can I just be super honest with you? I love this community, but you people are difficult, all right? I mean, it's hard to break in. Like, it's hard to feel like you belong. And I'm just being straight up honest with you because I love you and because I think it's, it's, this is everywhere, but we can do better, right? I mean, I talk to other people who have moved into the Ross community um, from outside, and they weren't, and they will, as soon as I say that, they're like, oh, thank God. I thought it was just people hated us. I'm like, no, they hate me too. You're fine, all right? It's just hard, all right? It's just kind of hard to break into a community that's kind of small, and, and many people stay here, graduate from high school, and come back and live here, raise their family. It's difficult to break in. Right? It is. But, but the church can't be that way. And yet sometimes it is. We have a hard time making room at the table for other people. And oftentimes it's just because of cliques. Adults have them as well as teenagers. All right, here's the other one, is we find ourselves in a very judgmental place sometimes. I know it's hard to imagine that Christian people can be judgmental, but they can. 
All right, and it often looks something like this. Everybody's just kind of looking at this person right here. What is the standard for ever judging anyone? It's always you. As long as you feel better, smarter, that your kids behave better or get better grades, that you have more things, that you have more money, or you live in a certain neighborhood, you're always the standard in which we judge somebody else. And as long as we feel like we are better, then we feel better. Even if the standard is Jesus, even if the standard is faith, it's in the church too, right? Is, is I get to sit here and I get to look at you and I could say, well, either I like you, I don't like you, I accept you. I know what you said about her. I know what he said in a life group or at church one morning, and then I know actually how he behaves at work. Have you seen that? Or you, can you believe that kid from our algebra class walked into church last Sunday? Do you know what their kids are like? And even if you're a follower of Jesus, as long as I'm doing better at connecting with him than you, I feel better about my place at the table. But you may, not, you may need to go find another table. We struggle with it. We all do. But it's not just cliques or judgmentalism that keeps us from being the church that Jesus, like, prayed for and died for, right? It's also just kind of this distant thing we have going on here. Some of us just prefer to keep a distance from the community, and it looks a little bit like this. So let's set our chairs back down. I'm afraid that this person's going to go over the side soon, but if they do, nobody hop up. They'll be fine, all right? This is kind of what, what the distance, so there's, there's the table set, and this guy over here is just kind of like right here. And when we set a distant seat at the table, you're someone who consumes but doesn't contribute to the community. You're a consumer. You take, but you don't give. Sometimes in the summertime, oftentimes in the summertime, I should say, as my kids were younger, though that's, it's still slightly true, um, you know, there would be, they would be in and out of the house, or some of their friends would be, and this was often the case summers ago. They would rush into the freezer, and, and they want popsicles, right? I mean, popsicles was just like the blood of summer. Like, if you didn't have one, you died. And so there were those, like, frozen tube popsicles that taste like acid, you know? Like, just, it's horrible. But, um, and that's the ones that they like. And so the kids would be coming in and out all summer. Hey, can we have popsicles? Can we have popsicles? Can we have popsicles? Like, sure, just go, go, take them, take them. It's great. And, and they would enjoy them. Now, that's okay because like, we're setting the table for kids, right? It would be a little different if an adult came into your kitchen one summer, just walked in through the door, be like, hey, dude, can I have a popsicle? Now, you'd probably be like, sure, have a popsicle. Who are you? But have a popsicle. But if that adult kept coming back every day, hey, can me and my buddies have a popsicle and just started raiding your freezer of popsicles, there would be a moment in time you'd be like, what's up? Who are you? Why are you taking my popsicles? I'm trying to do something here 
and all you're doing is taking. See, sometimes in the church, we have this consumer mindset, and we just want to stay distant. Like, you guys do your thing, and I'll kind of be a part of it, sort of. But I'm not going to help you. I'll just take. And it's very selfish. It's a very selfish seat to sit in because, um, because, because it out, it always, the distant chair always asks the question, what's in it for me? What can I get? Now, if you're a guest, okay, if you're a guest with us this morning, or if you, maybe this is one of your first times here and you're trying to get in a feel for White Oak, you sit in this distant chair. chair. I, I, I imagine that's where you are, and that's what our chairs are here for, for you just to come and, and check things out at your own pace. Love it. Be here. Stay here. But know this about me and about the people you're sitting with and about the God that we love is you can't stay here for very long. Because we, we just can't, we just won't. We love you too much to let you stay here very long. But that's the distance seat. Now, there's one, there's one more, and there are several, but I think this is where we get caught up in creating a space for people. And, and, and please hear me on this. There's also this seat of being comfortable, of just staying comfortable. You're like, man, I, I, I love Jesus. I've been part of his church for a long time. Like, I don't consider myself super judgmental. I um, feel like I'm, I'm, I'm very welcoming. I feel like that I, I get what you're saying here. And the seat of, of being comfortable, and the problem with the comfort is this, is these chairs are going to fall over. But that'll actually probably help the point. Is this is what comfort looks like. You still have a seat. It's just not doing what the chair was created to do anymore. And if that's us, then we aren't contributing to setting a seat at the table for others at all. Even though maybe we think we are, we're stuck. The phrase, welcome one another, not, not necessarily in the NLT, which is the version I've been reading of, but in chapter 14 and 15, this phrase, welcome one another, is used three times. Why do you think that is? Because Paul realizes that if we don't get our stuff together here, then we will never be able to tell our neighbors how much God loves them out there. That you and I have a responsibility to welcome our neighbors, to welcome the people that we don't like, the people that don't have kids like your kids, the people whose skin color might be different from yours, the people who maybe live in a different neighborhood or have an income level that's different than yours, have a background that's different than yours, the people that, yeah, maybe they talk about other people and you've overheard it. I don't care. It's our responsibility to make sure that they are welcome at the table of Jesus Christ. That's our responsibility. It's not theirs. We create a place of belonging. That's on us. And so these chairs, that we, how you create a space for belonging for other people, let me show you. How you create a space for belonging, that, real quickly, real quickly, you have a seat of prayer. Because let me tell you this, when you, see, when you sit in a seat of prayer for other people, for people that you don't like, for people who aren't like you, for people who are different, for people who you don't think belong here. When you are praying for them, it's really, really hard when you're praying for someone to believe that they don't belong at your table. So you pray for people. You pray for them. 
You pray for Jesus to infiltrate their heart. That's one. The next one is this, is you act like a sibling instead of a judge. Man, that's Paul's whole point in Romans chapter 14. You guys have been treating each other and judging each other about all of these food rules. He's like, shut up. That stuff doesn't even matter. Who cares? Eat it or don't eat it. I don't care, but here's the thing I care about. Stop sitting in a seat of judgment and start sitting in a seat of brotherly love. He says that you don't sit in the seat of judges anymore. You are siblings. You are brothers and sisters. And what do brothers and sisters do is they get to know each other. They know each other. I mean, really know each other. Not like in, in Romans chapter 13 when he says, don't just pretend to love other people. Actually love them. All right? That's what you're to do. As brothers and sisters, you get to know each other. You care for one another. That's what, do brothers and sisters fight? Oh, yeah. Do they disagree? Often. But when dinner comes, whose butt's in the chairs at the table? It's your brother and it's your sister. And you accept them and you love them and you save the space for them. That's it. That's, that's the second chair. Prayer, siblings. Here's the other one. It, you're you're going to love this one because I think this one is materially available. That you're just available. You're sitting in a seat of making yourself available for people intentionally. Do they, need, do they need something? You move. In fact, you move before they tell you they need it. That's what creating a seat at the table looks like. You move before they tell you. You're, you're there with your time. You're there with your money. You're there with every resource that God has blessed you with to be available for other people, to lift them up, to care for them. Don't wait for them to ask. Can you imagine if we didn't wait for people to ask? Well, that would just be amazing. Here's the third one, is that you're helping you're just in the seat of being helpful. That you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, that you and I own the responsibility of helping the Christ-formed life form in other people. That you are using your God-given talents and your gifts to help other people not only know that they have a seat at the table, but that they are to create room for other people too that you are helping people into the Christ-formed life. Look what Paul says in Romans chapter 15. He says this in 15.5. May God who gives this patient and encouragement help you live in complete harmony with each other as it is fitting for followers of Jesus Christ. Then all of you can join together with one voice giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. That was Paul's obsession. That was Jesus's prayer in John 17, that above anything else, that we would be unified together. Forget the things that don't matter. The things that don't matter to worshiping our God and concluding others, those are just details. Who cares? But Paul says this matters most is that we know how to love each other and create a space of belonging for everyone. So here's the question. This is how we're going to go into a time of reflection today. What is it that you need to do? How are you making room at the table for others? If you are a follower of Jesus, you have a responsibility to set the table for someone else. And how is it you are making room for others at our table. What does it look like? 
if each of us were responsible for expanding this table and creating a seat for someone else. You, you want to talk about, let's talk about this building that we're going to build in Ross, right? This, the White Oak, the facility that we're going to build four miles north of here on 27. You know what it's going to take? It's going to take every single one of us, first of all, being generous and, and, and just giving the snot out of it, all right? But, but it's, it's more than that. It's actually realizing that there's not a room for a seat of my preferences. Can I tell you what? We're going to build a building. We're going to build a facility that we, that we think, that our leaders think we can afford. And there's going to be several things about it that you aren't going to like. And me neither. And I'm helping design it. And I don't like things about it. I wish it had this or I wish it didn't have that. You know what? Who cares? There's no, there's no room at the table for my preferences. Preferences are great, but I just got to create space for people. There's no room at the table for my opinions, for opinions to divide us. Everyone's got opinions and most of them aren't bad, but there's no room for opinions that don't matter as long as we're creating space for people. We've got work to do. And as Paul is pleading to the Romans in the first century, as, as I think he is pleading to us now, don't let the things that don't matter get in the way of the things that really do. And that is the gospel. Every person in Cincinnati and Colerain and Ross and Hamilton and Fairfield would know the love that their Heavenly Father has for them. And it starts with us. And if you don't know that love, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus and, and, and given your faith to him and, 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 and been baptized, I encourage you, now is the time to consider that deeply. And you can mark your connection card and we'll, one of us will follow up with you. No rules, no tradition, no nothing, just simply Jesus and your heavenly father who loves you. Your posture, my posture, my words, and my attitude, they will only do one of two things. They will deny people a seat at the table, or they will welcome them to it, and there is no in-between. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask you to think on how you're creating space at the table. And after you've had a moment to think about that, I, I'm gonna, we're going to invite you to come to Jesus' table. There's two here in the front and there's two in the back. And we take these symbols every week to remember that we have a God who loved us so much um, to create a space at the table for all of us, to send his son to die for us. And we will celebrate that now together. And there's a place for you to give your offering as well. But as you take that meal together as followers of Jesus, or if you just in your seat talking to God, consider who it is you're preparing a table for. And keep in mind that we are worshiping a very, very good God who has always left a spot for you. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. The spot that you've cleared for us is one of grace and mercy that we don't deserve, but we are so thankful for. Father, God in heaven, we worship you for that and ask you to open our eyes to the ways that we've had blinders on. We have blinders on, Father, that is not helping advance your kingdom here. So strip those away, Father, so that all people see is the gospel, is the good news of Jesus, Father. Do that, do that work in us, Lord. We ask you to in the name of Jesus. Amen.